This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Might the U.S. be about to turn a COVID corner? The lead starts right now. COVID cases could, could be peaking in parts of the U.S., which means they could, could be coming down soon. This, as top health experts warn, Every American could end up being exposed to Omicron. Plus, the January 6th committee just invited a new guest to their party. They're asking the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, if he feels like voluntarily cooperating. And match point for Novak Djokovic, a decision on the tennis star's fate in Australia could come any moment. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this hour in our health lead, a new warning from the nation's top health experts today. Dr. Anthony Fauci, as well as the acting FDA commissioner, say Omicron is so efficient at spreading that almost everyone in the U.S. will at least be exposed to it, even if you're vaccinated and boosted. That does not mean, of course, that everyone is going to get infected or get sick, just exposed to it. Meanwhile, The Biden administration says it will send 10 million test kits to schools every month to help keep classrooms open. And the White House is actively actively exploring, we're told, making high quality masks more available to Americans. Those efforts all could make a critical difference. Right now, a sliver of good news. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, cases appear to be peaking in some places, such as New York, which means case counts could soon be coming down. Omicron with its extraordinary, uh, uh, unprecedented degree of efficiency of transmissibility, will ultimately find just about everybody. It's finding and infecting nearly three quarters of a million Americans on average every day. At United, 3,000 staff have COVID right now. The airline forced to trim schedules. More than 800 LAPD staff now in quarantine. We are very focused on... Chicago's mayor just tested positive. So did West Virginia's governor. I'm thankful to the Lord above that I've been vaccinated, I've been boosted. That being said, I feel extremely unwell at this point. The Omicron surge appears now to be peaking in parts of the Northeast. Over the past week, COVID-19 cases have remained extremely high, but they may be starting to plateau. We are not at the end, but I wanted to say that this is, uh, to me, a a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope in a time when we desperately need that. But plenty pain to come. More COVID patients are in the hospital now than ever before. The average daily death toll is now... About 1,600 per day, which is an increase of about 40% over the previous week. This morning in Chicago, kids are back in school after the dispute between unions and officials over COVID safety measures. Other short-staffed school districts appealing to parents to sign up as substitute teachers. 
if we could get uh, 50 to 100 or even more, um, that's better than what, what we have right now. Hey, look, I've... Now, after more salty exchanges during a Senate hearing... You keep distorting you? the truth. It is, it did is you stunning. Talk, How did you, you talk that? to any of the scientists privately as the highest paid... Dr. Fauci muttered this on a hot mic about Roger Marshall. What a moron. Plus, a rare rebuke for a couple of senators from Fauci's employer. It's disappointing and frankly unacceptable that Republican senators chose to spend a hearing spreading conspiracy theories and lies about Dr. Fauci rather than how to protect people from COVID-19. Now, with that rampant Omicron variant still spreading, the CDC is getting ready to update its mask guidance on its website to include details of the different levels of protection that the different masks offer. We also heard from the White House. They are, quote, in the process right now of strongly considering options on how to get more good masks out to the American people. Definitely a bit of a whiff of uh, too little, too late. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, both Dr. Fauci and the acting FDA commissioner this week have said that nearly everyone is going to be exposed to the Omicron variant. Again, that's not necessarily infected with it or sick, just exposed. Um, are you discouraged by that, rap- that rather remarkable change in tone? Well, I think we, you know, we've been hearing this for some time. If you listen to the WHO European chief uh, some time ago, they, they estimated that you know, 50% of people living in, in that part of the world would be infected within six to eight weeks. And that just speaks to the, to the real contagiousness of, of this virus. And I think even going back to last year, Jake, I mean, when people say this is going to become endemic, that it's just going to be here, uh, part of that conversation is also that at some point people will likely be exposed to the virus. It's always been about how fast do we allow that to happen. If, if, you, if you get to a point where people are, a lot of people are getting infected all at the same time, that's a problem because that's when you start to overwhelm hospitals. That you know, goes back to some of the earliest conversations we've had in this pandemic about flattening the curve. It's not discouraging. I think we've known that people are likely to come in contact with this virus at some point. It's just a question of how fast that happens. And New York is showing a possible downturn in Omicron-related cases. Might that be a sign that we're nearing a peak in the U.S., which means it will be followed by cases uh, falling? Yeah, I I think this is potentially good news. And we can see what's happening in New York. Uh, This is New York State. uh, And and then look at the the country overall. In the country overall, the numbers are still going up, about 34 percent. But you know, you do see as that white line up there, a bit of a downturn there. And uh, you're seeing that in D.C. as well, where you are, Jake. So that could potentially be good news. It reflects what they've seen in South Africa and the U.K., which are a few weeks ahead of us. What we've seen in the United States over and over again, big country, is that uh, there tends to be these rolling sort of waves of, of peaks and, and troughs. So while, you know, the Northeast may start to see this, this downturn, and that's obviously good news, there may be other parts of the country, given that the numbers are still going up in the country overall, that have not yet peaked. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. We're following those numbers closely. But in the areas that haven't been as hit as hard by Omicron as of yet, and reflecting on the conversation we were just having about how contagious this is, they are likely to see those cases can continue to go up for a while, but then probably a steep descent. One thing, Jake, I'll just tell you, going back to the testing, you know, I've been talking about this forever, but 
we're obviously not doing enough testing. So if you have 750,000 confirmed cases in any given day, you'd probably have to think there's a couple million probably out there for real, maybe even more than that, that are either not getting tested or just doing at home testing and not getting reported. Last night, Dr. Fauci advised Americans to, quote, get the highest quality mask you can tolerate. Those masks have not always been readily available to everyone. Are there enough N95s, uh, N95s available for everyone in the U.S. to start wearing them if they wanted to? I, I think so, uh, Jake, but this is a remarkably hard question to still answer. I mean, even as reporters, you know, going on, looking at all the various sites, looking at what the CDC says availability is, but also uh, nonprofits like Project N95, which is a great site people should go to if they're trying to find masks and make sure the masks that they're getting are real masks, not counterfeit masks. But you're right. We, we, there's still, uh, it's not clear. Uh, Dr. Fauci says there should be enough of these masks now, the N95 masks. And by the way, you know, we've talked about this, but N95 masks like this one, um, you, you want to make sure that they are, they are legitimate masks. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to do this. Again, various websites will tell you how to do it. But one thing is if they have the loops that go around the back of the head, that's a pretty good sign that you're going to get a mask that has a, a more snug fit as opposed to just masks that have the ear loops. Just a little little uh, tip there in terms of trying to figure out which mask works. But yeah, we, we besides vaccines, I don't think we've had enough investments in making sure that enough tests are out there. There was discussion at one point about sending five of these masks to everyone's home. That didn't happen. Uh, so right now, people have to sort of figure it out for themselves, spend the money on them, and then also verify that what they're getting is a legitimate product. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks as always. Breaking news, the January 6th committee is looking for an RSVP from the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy. Then that escalated quickly. Mitch McConnell calling presidential Biden unpresidential after Biden suggests anyone not supporting his election reform or filibuster reform is like a segregationist or Confederate. The number two Democrat in the Senate is here to respond to McConnell. Plus, it's all apologies across the pond. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson just said he was sorry, but there's one thing he did not say. In our politics lead, five days until Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's self-imposed deadline to change filibuster rules to help Democrats pass election reform legislation without any Republican support necessary. Now we're learning the president is expected to keep the pressure on Senate Democrats after a rather sharp speech yesterday in Atlanta where Biden said anyone who votes against election reform or even against changing the rules to pass election reform legislation is on the side of Confederate traitors and segregationists from the 1960s. Let's discuss this with the Senate Majority Whip, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. And Senator, President Biden is turning up the heat on Senate Democrats, uh, but here's what your Republican colleagues are hearing from their leader. Yesterday, he shouted that if you disagree with him, you're George Wallace. George Wallace. If you don't pass the laws he wants, you're Bull Connor. He compared, listen to this, a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. How profoundly, profoundly unprecedented. Look, I've known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. 
Are there not, Senator Durbin, are there not legitimate reasons that a senator, a Democratic senator, might be concerned that changing the filibuster rule will set a horrible precedent that Republicans will exploit to do something like pass a nationwide abortion ban or something like that without saying that Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin are like Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis? I think what it boils down to, Jake, is this. Take a look at the Senate. Take a look at our productivity. Take a look at our responsiveness to national issues. And what you're going to find is a big, empty, quiet chamber that doesn't go to work anymore. Why don't they go to work? Because everything requires 60 votes slash beat a filibuster. And it's a 50-50 Senate. Even a majority doesn't work. You need 60 votes. And as a consequence, we don't respond to virtually anything. And I think what you're hearing from President Biden is a reflection of several things. The gravity of the issue when you have a former president of the United States with a massively bruised ego who's wandering around saying the election results were stolen, which is a big lie, and firing up state legislatures to change laws and restrict voting opportunities for Americans. This is as fundamental as it gets in a democracy. Joe Biden came to the United States Senate on a civil rights platform. That's why he ran in the first place. And the fact that he shows emotion when it comes to the voting rights of Americans, I'm glad he did. But you're comparing, or Biden is comparing, and you're not criticizing, the idea of a legislator reducing the number of days for early voting from 15 to 10 or wanting voters to present a photo ID before they vote. You're comparing that to Bull Connor, who literally set dogs upon civil rights protesters. George Wallace, who said segregation today, segregation forever. I'm paraphrasing. Or, Or Jefferson Davis, the president of the traitorous confederacy. I mean, isn't that a little stark? It is stark, and I will concede that point. But don't overlook the reality that in 20 different states governed and led by Republicans in legislature and the governorship, in each and every one of them, they are taking step by weary step to make sure that Americans, fewer Americans, are going to vote. Who in the world sets out as a political agenda reducing the vote in America? Exactly the opposite should be our goal by both political parties. And yes, that was the goal of the segregationists, was to reduce the opportunity for African-Americans to vote, well-documented over spans of decade after decade after decade. So yes, there are parallels there. Perhaps the president went a little too far in his rhetoric. Some of us do. But the fundamental principles and values at stake are very, very similar. Your home state of Illinois just did a big election reform law uh, to, to make it easier to vote, to open up uh, the voting rolls. But I don't have to tell you, I could go through the number of states. For instance, New Jersey doesn't allow uh, ballot collection. Uh, that's something that Democrats uh, oppose when Republicans do it in Texas or, or other states. Um, Delaware only has early voting for a few days, not like as generous as places like California. I mean, this is the object. I, I totally get you. Legislatures are operating on the big lie and it's a lie and it's hideous. But a lot of Democratic-run states have pretty arcane uh, and restrictive voting laws as well. Let me go out on a limb, uh, Jake, and just tell you flat out, I think those uh, states should be held to the same standards of opening up opportunities, whether Democrats control the legislature or Republicans. The bottom line is this. If you are legally eligible to vote, we ought to make it easy. A national holiday for Election Day, how about that for an idea, so you don't lose your job when you go in to vote? 
this idea that you're going to be able to register on the same day and vote. It's been tried in state after state. No evidence of fraud. It's a, a convenience for a lot of voters that we ought to accommodate no matter what your state says. Whether New York has it or Illinois has it, we ought to make it the national standard. Case after case, whatever your state may be, Democrat or Republican, the notion is this. If you are legally eligible to vote, we're going to make it easier for you to do it, not harder. Senator Dick Durbin, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Jake. Breaking news, the January 6th committee just sent House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy a letter asking the top House Republican to cooperate voluntarily. Will he? Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead, the January 6th Select House Committee wants to hear from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. In the last hour, the committee sent a letter to McCarthy asking him to voluntarily cooperate. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles live on Capitol Hill for us. Ryan, you've read this six-page letter to McCarthy. What does the committee specifically want to hear from him? Well, Jake, there's no doubt uh, by what we've read in this letter that the committee believes that Kevin McCarthy is in possession of a lot of information as it relates to not only January 6th itself, but the lead up to the insurrection that he hasn't fully revealed to the public that they believe is a crucial part of their investigation. Let me read to you uh, just one section of that letter from Benny Thompson to the House Minority Leader. It reads, quote, we must also learn about the president's plans for January 6th and how they came together and all of the other ways he attempted to alter the results of the election. For example, in advance of January 6th, you reportedly explained to Mark Meadows and the former president that objections to the certifications of the electoral votes on January 6th was, quote, doomed to fail. So that's an example, Jake, of this information that at this point has not been made public. And obviously the committee is in possession of thousands of messages and, and, and details and data from uh, the former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, which they've been releasing piecemeal here and there. This is another example of that. Obviously, we also know that Kevin McCarthy spoke to Donald Trump on January 6th. That's another part of what the committee would like to ask him very specific questions about. Now, at this point, Jake, this is just a voluntary ask. This is not a subpoena. It's not enforceable by law. They just want McCarthy to come on his own accord. They've even set a date for it of February 3rd. Of course, the big question is, will he do it, Jake? And... Of course, the big question, has McCarthy responded yet? He hasn't. And we've reached out to his office for a specific uh, request to see how he plans to respond uh, to the committee's ask of him. But we should point out, Jake, that Kevin McCarthy's been asked numerous times about whether or not he would participate in an investigation uh, as it relates to January 6th. Uh, our colleague Manu Raju asked him about it uh, way back uh, when there was talk of an independent commission being formed. Uh, and at that time, he told Mano quite simply, sure, I would answer questions from that independent commission. But now, of course, McCarthy has cast uh, dispersions on this select committee. He's called it partisan. Uh, he pulled away uh, the Republican members that he initially appointed as part of that committee because the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had vetoed several of them. But even after that, after this House Select Committee was formed that was largely formed along partisan lines, even though there are two Republicans that sit on the committee, McCarthy's been asked about it since then. His local television station in Bakersfield, California, asked him uh, if he would talk to the committee. He told them, quote, I have nothing to hide, but I also have nothing to add. So, Jake, we'll have to see if he makes good on that promise. Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with legendary journalist Carl Bernstein. He's a CNN political analyst and the author of a brand new book getting hot reviews all over the country. It's called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. 
The book is out now and highly rated and reviewed. Carl, uh, Congressman McCarthy is the third Republican lawmaker who the committee has requested cooperation from. They also sent letters to Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Jim Jordan of Ohio. Both Perry and Jordan have suggested they're not going to cooperate voluntarily. What do you think McCarthy's going to do? I think he's going to stonewall it. We're witnessing a cover-up by the leadership of the Republican Party of a conspiracy to undermine the democratic system. There's never been anything in our history in this country like it. You have to go back to the Civil War to see a political party that was as seditious as we're exhibiting now in the Republican Party. In the Civil War, it was part of the Democratic Party. But never have we had a seditious president of the United States who sought to stage a coup. And now that coup and the cover-up of it has been embraced by Leader McCarthy, by Leader McConnell. It is something unlike anything we've seen in this country before. And it is not only a disgrace, but if you look at this letter, I've read it now, it's fascinating. Uh, They have the goods. This investigation has the goods. They know what McCarthy said to a large extent to Donald Trump on January 6th. And McCarthy has lied about it since. So we have a real conspiracy, a real cover up, real stonewalling in excess of anything we saw in Watergate. Well, let's talk about that, because, I mean, in addition to the amazing work uh, of you and and Bob Woodward um, and uh, and some other journalists as well, uh, one of the things that, you know, got Nixon out of office were the tapes. He was tape recording all these conversations in the Oval Office. Today, uh, we don't have the tapes necessarily, uh, but we have text messages and other communications uh, because... Uh, People write down conspiracies these days and and send them to each other's phones. Uh, This is, you know, pretty significant, all these text messages. Absolutely. And the goods are there. But I'll tell you the other thing that we don't have that we had at the time of Watergate, and that is a Republican Party committed to the rule of law instead of a conspiracy to cover up the truth and stonewalling. That what got Richard Nixon removed from office were courageous Republicans in the House who voted for articles of impeachment against the President of the United States and the Judiciary Committee. And then Barry Goldwater, the conservative, the great conservative leader, the nominee of his party for president in 1964. Uh, Goldwater led a group of Republicans to see Richard Nixon the night before he resigned. And Nixon asked, will I be convicted in the Senate because I know I'm going to be impeached by the House? Do I have enough votes? And Nixon was confident he had enough votes to survive uh, conviction in the Senate. Goldwater turned to Nixon and said, Mr. President, you may have four votes in the Senate, but you don't have mine. And at that moment, because of the courageous leadership of Republicans, Richard Nixon made up his mind to resign the presidency. And we had a peaceful transition of power. That's the difference. Where have you gone, Barry Goldwater? Let's talk about your your new memoir. It focuses on your life from 16 to 21, before Watergate, before uh, Trump, before Hillary Clinton. So many uh, other chapters of history that you later reported on. Why were those years so formative for you? Well, first of all, I was age 16 when I went to work at this great newspaper, the opposition newspaper to the Washington Post. I went to work at the Evening Star, the afternoon paper in my native Washington. It was a Jim Crow town that I grew up in. I went to segregated public schools in the nation's capital until the Brown decision in 1954 when I was in the sixth grade. It's the time of the civil rights revolution. 
I covered at the age of 16, if you can imagine such a thing, Kennedy's inaugural parade. A few weeks before that, I was sent as a copy boy to Burning Tree Country Club uh, to get some pictures from a star photographer who was taking pictures of President Eisenhower on a putting green. Mm -hmm. And I got within 10 feet of Eisenhower and I saw the spots on his hands. Can you imagine that at the age of 16? And, and then I moved through the ranks. And what this book is, it is a book about, it's not the old man looking back, it's written in the voice of the kid at the time who had the best seat in the country from ages 16 to 21, civil rights revolution, the beginning of the Vietnam War and the demonstrations there, the assassination of Jack Kennedy. I got to go to all of Kennedy's press conferences practically to dictate a text back to the newsroom of what the president was saying at his press conference. So, so it's about this kid that gets to do everything and thrown in with these reporters, with these editors who are the greatest of their time. So we are my teachers? We only have a little time left, but the New York Times called your uh, new book a eulogy for the newspaper business. Others have called it a, a love letter. Which is it? It's both. And it also, Bob Woodward and I did a program last night uh, online from Politics and Prose, the great bookstore in Washington, uh, about this book. And what you also see in the book is this straight line from what I learned at the Evening Star about having two sources, about the best obtainable version of the truth, a straight line about what real reporting is to the Watergate reporting we did at the Washington Post, even though this book takes place only about this kid who had his is one foot in the classroom, one foot in the juvenile court, one foot in the pool hall, and got this amazing job that gave me this most amazing life that I've had. Amazing life, and you had three feet. That's the, that's the other thing. Uh, Carl Bernstein, uh, <laughs> your new book, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, it's out now. Congratulations. Thanks so much for joining us. We will, we will see you soon. And again, the book is getting great reviews all over. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, everywhere. A stunning admission from Thanks, Novak Steve. Djokovic today. Now we could learn any moment if the tennis star will be kicked out of Australia. Stay with us. Our sports lead now, match point for tennis's top men's player, Novak Djokovic, with Australian Open officials announcing which players are in the tournament later tonight. All eyes are on Australia's immigration minister, who is expected to decide before that announcement whether Djokovic is allowed to remain in Australia. The Serbian star spent today training after releasing a rather stunning statement in which he admitted to having violated one of the requirements for entering Australia, not isolating after he tested positive for COVID. As CNN's Phil Black reports for us from Melbourne, that adds to the intrigue and the investigation into whether Djokovic lied in order to get into the country. Some apologies are swift, fulsome, heartfelt. Novak Djokovic chose a different path, opening with, I want to address the continuing misinformation about my activities. The world number one tennis player's extraordinary statement tries to explain how and why he tested positive for COVID-19 and then hung out with lots of people over the following days. This is the Djokovic timeline. December 14, he attends a basketball game in Belgrade. December 16, hearing about infections at the game, he undergoes a rapid antigen test. It's negative. He feels good, but cautious. So he sits for a PCR test anyway. 
December 17, another negative result from a rapid test before attending this children's tennis event. Later that day, Djokovic says, he receives the PCR result. It's positive. December 18, Djokovic cancels all appointments except an interview with French sports publication L'Equipe because, he says, I didn't want to let the journalist down, but did ensure I socially distanced and wore a mask except when my photograph was being taken. The journalist Djokovic was so concerned about says he was never told about the positive test, nor was the photographer. Djokovic now admits he made a mistake. While I went home after the interview to isolate for the required period, on reflection, this was an error of judgment, and I accept that I should have rescheduled this commitment. For not alerting this reporter, not telling him, hey, by the way, I am positive for, for COVID. Do you still want to do this? We should probably cancel. The guy went uninformed about this thing that Djokovic knew, and keeping that secret from him, I think it's pretty, pretty irresponsible. Then a second sort of apology from Djokovic, admitting there was inaccurate information in the travel declaration form submitted to Australian authorities. That's a potential crime here. Asked if he's been to any other countries in the previous 14 days, his answer is no. Social media pictures show he'd been in Serbia and Spain. This was submitted by my support team on my behalf. My agent sincerely apologises for the administrative mistake. This was a human error and certainly not deliberate. While Djokovic trains, desperately trying to focus on winning, the ball is now in the Australian government's court as it considers cancelling his visa once again. Jake, the last we heard from the Australian government, the, its investigation is taking all of this in, the circumstances and documentation surrounding Djokovic's positive test, his behaviour immediately afterwards. Now, there is no formal deadline on its decision whether to cancel his visa or not, but it's worth noting that in just a few hours, the Australian Open will release its official draw for the competition. Djokovic is currently the number one seed. The government doesn't have to consider the impact of its decision on a major sporting event, but if it waits much longer, the consequences, the fallout, the circus-like atmosphere surrounding this whole saga, they're only likely to escalate. Jack. All right, Phil Black, live for us in Melbourne. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss journalist David Law. He's co-host of The Tennis Podcast. He's been following the sport for decades. David, given what we know about uh, Djokovic, that he consistently bucks COVID restrictions, he seems to ignore the science, he refuses to get vaccinated... Were you surprised by his statement? I, I was surprised in some ways that he made the statement before the decision was made, really, by the authorities. I thought he might just wait to see what they say first. But I think that he started to, to grow concerned that people were talking about these dates, the 16th when he tested positive, the the appearance with the kids. I think that that one in particular, he wanted to make very clear that he di he said he didn't know that he was positive when he went and met those kids. He didn't want that to be next to his name. And uh, and he, he was prepared to admit to not informing the, the journalists and going ahead with the interview on the 18th, which I think is, is, is really problematic. The fact that he did not uh, even informed them that he was positive. I mean, the, as as one of your reporters was saying earlier, pretty irresponsible. What do you think the Australian immigration minister will do? 
It's so difficult to say because they're in such a difficult position. They've already gone through this process once. They've had a judge overrule the decision of the border control. But at the same time, if they allow him to play now, they're basically saying all of those other things that we've just talked about, okay, they don't don't really matter in the grand scheme of things because we want him to play or we're prepared to let him into the country. They've already sent home one other player in a very similar position. So what do they do about her? Do they bring her back if they do allow him to play? We'll know in a few hours, but really it it could go either way. David Law, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Coming up, Boris Johnson just cried uncle, but will that settle the dust over his party foul? Stay with us. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologize. That's British Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying I'm sorry today amid growing outrage and calls for his resignation for attending a party at his official residence during the height of the UK's first COVID lockdown at a time when he was officially telling his constituents to avoid basic life functions, even attending a funeral of a loved one. In newly released emails from one of his top officials, it's revealed staffers were encouraged to, quote, bring your own booze to the gathering. But... As CNN's Salma Abdelaziz reports for us now, Prime Minister Johnson maintains he believed it to be an official work event, not a party. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? The famously unflappable Boris Johnson, the great political survivor, has finally flinched. He was hosting a boozy party in Downing Street. After an outpouring of condemnation for attending what critics allege was a bring-your-own-bottle party at his official residence, 10 Downing Street, in May, while the country was under strict COVID rules. The Prime Minister says he saw it as a work event, but finally made an apology of sorts. Even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way, People who suffered terribly, people who were forbidden from meeting loved ones at all, inside or outside. And to them and to this House, I offer my heartfelt apologies. Without actually admitting to wrongdoing and citing a pending investigation, his apology stoking even more anger. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road his defence, his defence, that he didn't realise he was at a party. <laughs> it's the first time the Prime Minister has even admitted to attending one of the multiple gatherings held by his staff while the country was essentially in a lockdown. Even though he was pictured at one such event seated alongside a bottle of wine and a cheese board. Johnson said he was at the BYOB party held in the Number 10 Garden in May but said he only went for 25 minutes to thank staff. With hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. To add salt to the wound, the event was held on a day with glorious weather, inviting to a public eager to get out. But it came with another warning to stay vigilant. You can spend time outdoors and exercise as often as you like, and you can meet one person outside your household. Restrictions that were abided by at the highest levels at various points. The Queen herself, one of thousands of Britons, forced to mourn the death of a loved one alone. 
It's a potentially lethal blow to Johnson and a scandal that's made casualties of top advisors and staff. I'm truly sorry. Now he's losing the support of his own party with calls for his resignation. Jake, this is a prime minister who is now trying to defend the indefensible, trying to make it somehow okay that he was gathered with wine and cheese, celebrating with officials at a time when the deadly virus was ripping through this country. And it's simply not flying in the court of public opinion. He has the lowest approval rating ever seen during his tenure. He's fighting for survival within his own party, people calling for his resignation. This is an apology that might be too little, too late. Jake? Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much. A live look at the United States Capitol right now where the late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, Democrat of Nevada, is leaving the Capitol for a final time. The Reid family is looking on as police escort the senator's casket from the rotunda to the steps of the Capitol. Earlier today, members of Congress and congressional staff paid their respects. Reid came from famously humble beginnings in Nevada, rising out of not just poverty but destitution, fighting as an amateur boxer and eventually becoming the most powerful senator on Capitol Hill. He retired from the Senate in 2017. He passed away on December 28th after losing a fight with pancreatic cancer. He was 82 years old. May his memory be a blessing. Coming up, gasoline costs 50% more, chickens up 10%, furniture hasn't seen prices rise as much since the 1950s, a look at when the pain in your wallet might go away. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the new COVID mystery. Where are the much-promised, much-heralded antiviral pills that were approved and considered a key way to stop the spread? Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta investigates. Plus, no clue what Putin will do. America's top diplomat on the case admits Russia is not standing down after several days of talks aimed at stopping a possible invasion of Ukraine. You will hear from her directly. And leading this hour, more work to do. President Biden admitting he's got an inflation problem that's getting worse by the day. New data revealing consumer prices rose nearly 7% over the last year, reaching levels not seen since Ronald Reagan's first term. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is at the White House with what's driving the price surge and how President Biden is trying to respond. What every American feels, confirmed today by a new Labor Department report, that 2021 was a year of sticker shock as inflation hit a four-decade high. The White House, mindful of the serious political and economic challenges at hand, tried to take the long view. This has been a unique year uh, on a lot of accounts, um, and, uh, and so we find ourselves in a uniquely strong economic position on a number of counts, and we've got price increases that, uh, that we, need to, we need to tackle. Omicron surge underscoring uncertainty in the nation's full economic rebound, with high prices and limited supplies still eroding consumer confidence in the new year. President Biden acknowledging the pocketbook pain, saying in a statement, we are making progress in slowing the rate of price increases. At the same time, this report underscores that we still have more work to do, with price increases still too high and squeezing family budgets. Nearly everything is more expensive, with used cars up 37 percent, furniture up 14 percent, and gas up more than 50 percent from a year ago. The cost of housing, food, clothes also spiking. The 7% increase in inflation over the last year is the highest jump in nearly four decades. 
While it's nowhere near historic highs of nearly 15 percent from 1980, it's one of the biggest challenges facing policymakers and the White House. We are working relentlessly. We are trying to make sure that competition is robust in industries so cost savings get passed on to consumers. The White House says inflation is only part of the economic picture, which has other signs of strength, including a 3.9 percent unemployment rate and historic wage growth. Yet with inflation expected to remain high for much of the year, the Federal Reserve is signaling its intention to raise interest rates, saying the economy no longer needs emergency support. If we see inflation persisting at high levels longer than expected, then, then we will, you know, then we'll, if we have to raise interest rates more over time, we will. We will use our tools to get inflation back. With a winter wave of Omicron cases hitting restaurants, airlines and other sectors hard, the economic recovery from COVID is shaping up to be even more tedious. Inflation also threatening to further complicate the president's Build Back Better agenda, with Senator Joe Manchin calling today's labor report very, very troubling. And president Biden will be on Capitol Hill tomorrow meeting with Senate Democrats. Jake, the meeting is about voting rights and the new push. But you can bet inflation also a key concern. In fact, it's one of the biggest political worries that Democrats across this town have been talking about all day as they head into the midterm election races where they're trying to keep control of the House and indeed the Senate. Jake. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Let's dig on this. Um, let's uh, bring in our panel. Just listen to some of these numbers the price of gas is up almost 50%, the biggest jumps ever in prices for new cars, fast food, restaurant meals, men's apparel, furniture and bedding up 13%, the highest spike since 1951, chicken up 10%, the biggest uh, rise since 2004, fish and seafood up 8%, the biggest since 2011. Catherine, you, you track this kind of stuff daily. What's going on? Is there a single issue driving this inflation? There are a couple of factors, or more than a couple of factors. The main one, or one of the main ones, is supply chain issues, right? You have factories getting shut down in China, you have ports still congested, too few truckers, et cetera. And then on the other side of the ledger is demand. Uh, demand is way up. Consumers have cash to spend and they're ready to spend it. And they have that cash available because they amassed a lot of savings while they were locked down uh, early in the pandemic, not spending money on travel, on restaurants, et cetera. And because the government gave them cash, that was sort of the goal. They're, they're spending it now. And they're spending more of it on goods, exactly the same things that are having trouble getting through supply chains. So what we see, essentially, is that the, some of the very same policies that have given us really good unemployment numbers, really good GDP numbers, spending numbers, et cetera, are also contributing to higher prices. Uh, it's part of the consequence of running the economy hot. Doug, last week, President Biden said that wages were at record highs for many workers but the, uh, the, obviously the counter argument is that these higher paychecks don't mean much if the extra money is going straight to the higher cost of living. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's exactly on the mark. I mean, the labor market is incredibly hot. If you look at the combination of number of workers, the hours they work per week and how much they get paid for each hour, payrolls are growing at a 10% annual rate in the most recent employment report. That's red hot. So there's a lot of demand for workers out there. It's generating a lot of wages. But, but none of those numbers look like the 7% top line that we saw in the report today. And indeed, if you look at the core things, the food, energy, and shelter that are over 50% of the typical family's budget, that rose at an 8.2% last year. So they've got record high wage growth and they're falling behind at the same time. And so that's a very troubling picture. Abby, the White House is quick to say, hey, Biden's Build Back Better agenda will ease the pain 
Uh, but the truth is inflation is, and concerns about inflation, is why Senator Joe Manchin opposes Build Back Better in, in its current form. He's worried all that money going into the economy is going to keep rising prices. Yeah, I think that this is not going to make the Biden agenda any easier, frankly, unless they can make an argument that there's a way to do this that won't further exacerbate the problems uh, that we've been discussing. And, uh, you know, I think that the coronavirus pandemic is also compounding some of these issues. I mean, on top of the rising cost of everything in terms of goods and goods that people need in order to live, there's also uh, this ch- child care squeeze that is just causing families to feel like they're getting hit from all sides here. So this is really uh, an urgent issue for Biden to deal with. And he, I mean, you know, look, frankly, I think there's not a whole lot of hope that there's much legislation of significant that's going to get through, in part because of the narrow majorities. But I think Manchin is going to be probably dug in on this issue after this kind of uh, inflation report. And Doug, take a a listen to the type of thinking President Biden is hearing from his economic advisors. This is a voice that will be familiar to you. Every forecast shows that even with Fed rate hikes penciled in, the unemployment rate will continue to decline this year, and we should be back to full employment at the end of the year. So under this scenario, inflation comes down in the second half of the year. That's Jared Bernstein, obviously. Might it be too soon to raise interest rates? Could that drastically raise the cost of loans on higher-priced items such as new cars, mortgages, with home prices already at all-time highs? Well, Jared, of all people, should know you should never take a forecast to the bank. It's, it's the reality on the ground that's going to matter to voters, and, and they do have a problem with inflation right now. As I said, the labor market's red hot, and so I think the outlook for continued growth employment is very good. I, I don't see reason to be pessimistic on that. But the Fed needs to move from stepping on the accelerator, which it's been doing, to tapping the brakes, and it needs to do that as quickly as possible. So they should not be lobbying against rate increases. Rate increases are necessary, justified, and part of controlling inflation and continuing job growth. So uh, I I think they have to be careful where they go when they start lobbying the Fed for, for not doing its job. Catherine, what do you say to Republicans and others who say all the federal stimulus and corporate greed have overheated the economy and created this surge? Um, I do think probably federal stimulus has contributed to the higher demand. People got the stimulus payments. They they got all sorts of other kinds of transfers. They, they were lifelines for much of the public, but they did enable people to spend more money. I think that's reasonable. When it comes to something like Build Back Better, though, I'm just not persuaded, given the way that that bill is structured, that it will have any effect on inflation one way or the other. Biden says it'll bring down inflation. Republicans say it'll it'll jack it up. I think it's, it's probably going to have negligible impact, so I'm not terribly worried about that. On the corporate greed stuff, I just think this is nonsense. You know, it's... Um, It's political posturing, it's demagoguing, it's easy to claim that there's a villain out there and that's what's driving up these prices, but it's the fact that demand is up and supply is constrained. Corporations are always greedy. It's not like all of a sudden in the last year, they remembered, (laughs) oh gee, I'm supposed to be greedy now. (laughs) Abby, today President Biden So listen, go ahead, Doug. Jake, I just really think you have to emphasize what Catherine just said on both fronts. Number one, it's not like before this year we're living in the era of corporate altruism. They do what they do. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, And and as far as the the, the box the administration's in, the mistake was the American Rescue Plan, which $2 trillion was just way too big at that time. If they could just say that was too big, it was a mistake, and $155 billion, which is what Build Back Better would be, is not a threat, 
then they might have a chance in making that argument. But they can't acknowledge the error. And, and they're instead pivoting to these corporate greed arguments. It doesn't make any sense. Abby, today President Biden said inflation's a global problem and America has a fast-growing economy. Last month, he, he did call inflation just a bump in the road. What people don't hear is what's he going to do about it? That's, that's an increasing problem for Biden, whose yeah. uh, poll numbers are, are in the toilet. Yeah, um, I was very interested in hearing, um, you know, Brian Deese at the White House today talking about this because he acknowledged that they didn't, they got it wrong. They didn't foresee this coming. And that's, I mean, you know, it's good when politicians acknowledge when they gotten things wrong. But I mean, I think from the perspective of the American public, they're looking at the Biden administration that they're asking, do you guys know what you're doing? Uh, do you guys have a handle on these problems? And there's a perception now that they don't. And so they've got to right that ship if they're going to regain con- the confidence of the American public, because Americans will weather inflation. They will weather some of this stuff if they feel like the leadership has it under control. Uh, but right now, it seems like the Biden administration is is just you know, they're lurching from one extreme to another and saying that they are not anticipating things that people are telling them are coming their way. And that is, I think, um, you know, that's a perception problem that erodes confidence in the administration from a political perspective. All right. My thanks to all of you. Breaking news from the January 6th committee. The committee has sent a request for the top Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy, to talk to them. And they just met with one of the most recognizable faces from the Trump administration, if not one of the most honest. Then, Closer to the brink and Russia refusing to blink the warning from a top U.S. diplomat about Vladimir Putin. Plus, a medical helicopter crashes in a crowded neighborhood and everyone survived, including the baby being flown to the hospital. How did they do it? We'll tell you next. Topping our world lead, a top Russian official says Moscow will resort to military measures if diplomatic efforts with NATO fail. This latest threat comes after Yet another round of hours-long talks today between Russia and NATO aimed at stopping Vladimir Putin's military from invading Ukraine again. And the talks again yielded no meaningful breakthrough. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live for us in Brussels with the talks took place. Alex, the Deputy U.S. Secretary of State Wendy Sherman told you that Russia is not backing down. Tell us more. Yeah, Jake, the the two sides appear no closer to a solution for defusing this crisis Uh, on the Ukrainian border than they were before these talks even started. Now we are hearing threats from the head of the Russian delegation uh, who told reporters after that meeting at NATO today, quote, we will take all necessary measures to fend off the threat by military means if it does not work out with political means. Now, Jake, who's threatening whom here? It's not that Ukraine is poised on the border with Russia about to invade them. It's the other way around. Russia has 100,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine, looking like they're about to invade Ukraine. And so uh, the, the head of the U.S. delegation, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, told me that there is no sign that after these talks, Russia looks like it is going to de-escalate. Take a listen. There was no commitment to de-escalate, nor was there a statement that there would not be. What I think is very important, and which I think Russia heard loudly and clearly from all allies today, is... It's very hard to have dialogue, uh, to have diplomacy uh, that is conducive to success when, in fact, you have 100,000 troops, live fire exercises, propaganda, disinformation, other efforts to subvert that environment. 
Now, remember, Russia came into these talks this week with two major demands that had already been rejected out of hand by the U.S. and NATO, and that is that Ukraine never be allowed to join NATO and that NATO withdraw troops uh, from Eastern Europe. Um, that was never going to happen, according to U.S. and NATO leaders, and that's why Russia feels like it is being ignored. Now, NATO wants more discussions. They hope to make more progress. Uh, but uh, Deputy Secretary of State Sherman said they don't know what Russia is going to do next, that Russia themselves might not know what they're going to do next. A real indication that this really comes down to the decision of one man, Vladimir Putin. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks. Here to discuss Susan Glasser. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and CNN Global Affairs Analyst. She was stationed in Moscow for several years. Susan, thanks for joining us. This latest threat from the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister seems like a, a fairly significant escalation in the rhetoric coming from Russia. What does it suggest to you? Yeah, look, I think, Jake, that was the worry about this uh, intensive weeks of talks all along was that there was no possibility of an agreement because it, they were framed in such a vague way. Uh, Russia's demands are complete non-starters. It's a, it's a pretext in the first place. Uh, remember, this is a completely manufactured crisis. And so I think the worry all along was that Russia had demanded these talks, not because it wanted serious negotiations, but because at the end of it, Russia would then be able to say, see, look, they didn't meet our unreasonable demands, and therefore we have no choice but to go forward. So I fear that that's a potential scenario that we're looking at right now is, is Russia walking away at the end of this week and saying, you know, we have no choice but to proceed. Yeah, I mean, I asked uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken about that. Do you think these are just bad faith efforts? The Russians are going into this with that pretext exactly as you described it. He projected a more optimistic view, though I suspect privately he's a little more clear-eyed. Today's meeting uh, is the second of three with Russia scheduled to take place this week. Is there any reason for optimism that some sort of breakthrough can be reached and some off-ramp for Putin can be offered? You know, that phrase off ramp, I have to say, Jake, it triggers me, uh, you know, Sorry. because I remember for months uh, during the 2014 Ukraine crisis, the exact same thing again and again. What's the off ramp for Putin? What's the off ramp? How can we, you know, get him to look at the costs of this? And Putin has already factored in the exact costs that the American diplomats are now talking about publicly as a consequence of any further military action. He already understands that cutting off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Germany is very, almost certainly to be one of the costs. He understands that uh, sanctions that would cut Russian banks off from the international banking system is cooked into the price at this point. And so the fact that they're still willing to engage in this rhetoric, that they still have this enormous military footprint, uh, literally threatening Ukraine right now, I think it's very worrisome. And it seems like a much bigger force, I should point out, than the one that did begin a military incursion into Ukraine back in 2014. This is actually a bigger and more serious invasion force even than we saw a number of years ago. Today, the U.S. said it has finalized the sanctions options you were just referring to in the event that Russia does ultimately invade Ukraine again. The State Department is warning Putin of severe consequences again. Uh, are these threats... I mean, how does Putin even hear these threats? Does he, I mean, as you said, he already, he already calculated what he might lose, how the U.S., how the West would respond. Is he just playing a completely different game? He just doesn't care he's going to do this? Well, look, I think those who are saying, and, and many of the wisest Russia watchers, you know, believe that Putin himself likes to reserve all options until the final moment, uh, that he's not somebody who necessarily knows, you know, a month or six weeks in advance exactly what he's going to do, but that he wants to put his 
uh, pieces in position for him to be able to have the flexibility to make that decision to the end. And I do think it's important, having observed Putin over these last two decades, to underscore that he really is the decider in that system. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry uh, was never super empowered in Soviet times, and it is not super empowered today. So all those conversations that are taking place in Geneva, those are basically with pass-throughs. Those are not people who have the position to decide or not to decide uh, what happens next. All right, Susan Glasser, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Breaking news, the January 6th committee just sent an invitation to top House Republican Kevin McCarthy. This, as we learned, the committee met with Donald Trump's former press secretary. Stay with us. in our politics lead a major development in the investigation into the deadly January 6th insurrection. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been asked to provide information to the committee. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles, who's on Capitol Hill. And Ryan, this is, as of now, just a voluntary cooperation request. Is there any chance, however, that the committee, if he refuses to cooperate, could subpoena him? Yeah, there's always that chance, Jake. In fact, the committee has said from the beginning that they wouldn't hesitate to subpoena anyone who they feel is not cooperating fully with their investigation. But it's pretty clear that they would prefer these members of Congress, including now the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, to do so voluntarily. They believe that McCarthy has a lot of information, not only about the insurrection itself on January 6th, but the events leading up to it that leads them to believe that there are many things that he can share with the committee that would help their investigation. Now, in the past, McCarthy McCarthy has said that he has nothing to hide. He even said, sure, when asked by Armando Raju if he'd be willing to testify in front of what was then plans for an independent commission. Since then, he has said about this select committee that he has nothing to hide, but he also has nothing to add. So we'll have to see how he responds to this voluntary request. And then, Jake, whether or not the committee will move forward with the subpoena. And you have more breaking news about Trump's former press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. That's right. Uh, Kayleigh McEnany, who was the press secretary on January 6th, uh, now works for Fox News, uh, did testify in front of the committee today in a virtual hearing. Uh, We don't know exactly uh, what uh, she relayed to the committee, but she had been under subpoena for some time now. Her initial deposition appearance was delayed as she engaged with the committee. Now she has uh, actually sat down with them uh, virtually and answered questions. Of course, McEnany, another one of these people, very close to the former President Donald Trump, uh, who could have specific insight into that day, specifically on January 6th. Uh, At this point, we don't know what she told the committee, Jake. All right. Uh, Ryan, one other question. This this is a fringe conspiracy theory, but I have to ask you because it's showing up in congressional hearings raised by uh, House uh, and Senate Republicans. An Arizona man, uh, Ray Epps, he's become a target of what appears to be a completely baseless right-wing conspiracy that he was actually an undercover FBI uh, agent or informant or operative uh, at the Capitol on January 6th last year, that he, that he was planted by the government, go, this is the conspiracy theory, planted by the government to encourage the insurrection. Now, from his public profile and from, from reports I've seen about Epps, it, it appears that he's a Trump supporter um, and a former member of the Arizona branch of the, the far right wing group, the Oath Keepers. Has the January 6th committee looked into this accusation at all to see if there's any truth to it? Yes, they have, Jake. In fact, uh, the committee put out a statement yesterday saying that they have interviewed and talked with Ray Epps about his conduct uh, around the Capitol on January 6th, and that they specifically asked Epps if he's ever been employed by any federal government agency, specifically the FBI, to which he told them no. They also specifically asked him if he was an informant. He also said that he has never at any point in his life been an FBI informant. Now, this 
part of this conspiracy, uh, there's absolutely no evidence of which to back up, is that at one point Epps was on a list of individuals that the FBI was looking for uh, as it relates to activity related to the Capitol insurrection, and then he was eventually taken off that list. The conspiracy theorists have run wild with that. Many of them, members of Congress, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tommy Massey, even Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Of course, none of that has to do with his status as FBI informant, because as the committee found out by asking him directly, he simply never was. And that's the facts of this matter. Not, Jake, that it may matter to some of the folks peddling this conspiracy. Wait, wait a second. They, they thought that the FBI put an image of one of their undercover operatives online and said wanted and then took it off? That makes no sense at that, all. That's the most specific piece of, quote unquote, evidence that they've offered <laughs> when it comes to this particular conspiracy the- theory, Jake. There's just nothing else that would lend you to believe that there's any facts behind yeah, it. Yeah, not exactly a Mensa group there. Uh, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Joining us now, Republican Congressman, member of the January 6th Committee, uh, Adam Kinzinger. Uh, Congressman, I want to get to Ray Epps in a second, but first I want to talk about this breaking news. Your committee sending a letter to your leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader. Have you heard from McCarthy? Do you, do you think he'll cooperate? Yeah, I haven't heard anything yet. Uh, I certainly hope he does. Do I think he will? We'll see. Um, but, you know, holding a title in Congress doesn't make you exempt from having to be, you know, to bring information you may have related to such a serious investigation. Uh, it's obviously been reported that the president called him on January 6th and said, Kevin, uh, obviously these people care more about the election than you do. Uh, that's information we want to talk to him about. So certainly hope he does voluntarily cooperate. After all, it's the body he serves in doing the work that the body has been charged with doing. Uh, we'll see. have to see how it goes. Let's assume the worst about Kevin McCarthy for a second. Just I don't know why I would I would do that. But let, let me just uh, play that game. Would uh, the committee subpoena him if he if he opts to not voluntarily uh, tell you the truth? Yeah, I, I think, as the chairman said, it's on the table. Um, you know, obviously, there's a number of members that would possibly face this again. You're not exempt from having to come and testify Uh, that's an issue we're working through as a committee and figuring out what can these people provide that we can or can't get somewhere else, and we'll make a decision from there. What do you want to ask him? The letter seemed to suggest that that he knew that there was a scheme to uh, overturn the election by, by not counting the electoral votes. Well, there's a number of things I'm curious about. What did he know prior to January 6th? I mean, on a call with him on January 1st, I directly told him, that there was going to be violence. I predicted violence, and it was he very much dismissed it and just said, "Next caller." You know, it was a large conference call. Um, he made the decision to object to the electors. All that led up to January sixth. They convinced people that, in fact, uh, January sixth was some patriotic duty to uh, fight against the stolen election. And of course, he's you know, very close with the former president. He had the conversation on that day and maybe more. And I think that's of interest to the committee as we get to the bottom of what happened on that day and what led up to that day. Your committee also talked with former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. Did she have anything to contribute that you didn't know before? I'm not going to, you know, talk about what was testified to or what wasn't. I'll just say that uh, as the subpoena required, she appeared, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. I'm sure as information, as, as folks put the pieces of this puzzle together, we'll, we'll find out the bigger picture. Let's turn to the Ray Epps conspiracy theory. Um, let's watch a clip of Epps. Uh, uh, the, uh, of the, well, it, there is this clip of, of Epps the night before the insurrection and then during the insurrection. Uh, the night before, he says, tomorrow we need to go to the Capitol peacefully, peacefully. 
Uh, and then on January 6th, he says, take a step back. We're holding ground. We don't want to get hurt. And the crowd is chanting, fed, fed, fed. Now, you tweeted a rather colorful thread about this baseless conspiracy. You said, quote, he, he didn't enter the Capitol on January 6th and was removed from the most wanted list because apparently he broke no laws. I'm pretty sure the FBI wouldn't be dumb enough to put their own agent on a wanted list. What do you make of this? And you have, you know, Republican colleagues of yours in the House and Ted Cruz in the Senate pushing out this this nonsense. And I don't even understand why. So this is part of this this whole like flood the zone with confusion, with conspiracy. In fact, now the reaction is, you know, uh, I don't know why wasn't he arrested because he did say go into the Capitol. And, and what happens is anytime you call them out on B.S., there's a circular argument in one way or the other. The truth is the conspiracy said that Ray Epps was an FBI agent. Ray Epps is not an FBI agent. And that is the crux of this FBI conspiracy that somehow maybe their own base is too stupid to to be able to resist somehow an FBI-inspired insurrection. That's the kind of garbage we're dealing with. And this is new. His name is new to a lot of people. But for about the last three months, it's been growing on right-wing Twitter and conspiracy blogs to the point where, you know, whatever percent of the American people actually take it as fact that Ray Epps was an FBI agent. He was not. And uh, this was mainstreamed yesterday when Ted Cruz asked specifically to the FBI about Ray Epps. They can't comment as they don't about individual cases. And that was seen as even further of a conspiracy. This is why conspiracy theories can't be ignored anymore with this new kind of social media environment. They have to be nipped in their infancy. Well, and also because you have people who you would think would know better, like U.S. senators and members of the House, mainstreaming this stuff. Speaking of mainstreaming this stuff, I want to get your reaction to something I saw today that was kind of shocking. Um, So uh, the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, put out a tweet about new regulations in D.C. You have to show proof of of vaccination if you go to a restaurant. Uh, And also there's a masking order. Your Republican House colleague, Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio, responded to that um, with a picture of Nazi imagery uh, of a Nazi order. And he wrote, this has been done before, hashtag do not comply. Um, He added a comment. Let's recall that the Nazis dehumanized Jewish people before segregating them. Um, Congressman uh, Dean Phillips, I should note, who's who's a a Democrat and Jewish, he confronted Davidson on the on the floor of the House today. And he told me, and he said I could report this, I told him that the use of such imagery wasn't just repugnant and dangerous and a false equivalency, but deeply offensive and painful for Jewish people. I said I would debate mandates and tyranny wherever he wishes, but there's no debate on the offensiveness of his post. He could have cared less. What's your reaction? I mean, look, he's going to raise money on this. He's going to be known. This is the new, this is the new politics. It's not about leading anymore. It's about how can we out outrage the other person that just had the greatest outrage. Look, you, you can disagree with vaccine mandates in restaurants. You know, there's some of it I disagree with, but to say that that's somehow equivalent to Adolf Hitler early stages, you know, I would encourage Warren or anybody else to go back and maybe take a history lesson of what happened in World War II, what happened to 6 million Jews. It is insane. You know, the government wants to keep you healthy. I'm going to tell you the Nazis weren't interested in keeping the Jewish people healthy. That's a very basic start to all of this. And if we go down this level as a party, shame on us. As we go down this level as a people, shame on us. And every Republican leader needs to be condemning that kind of BS right now and saying that there's no place for that. Uh, Instead, they're talking about debating, well, 
whether or not Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger should be Republicans and not somebody like Warren Davidson tweeting conspiracies and Nazi imagery. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. You bet. It's considered a breakthrough in treating COVID, but it is not easy to find. We're going to take a look at why antiviral treatments are so scarce. That's next. Topping our health lead, when the FDA authorized the first oral antiviral COVID treatment last month, it was welcomed as a game changer with the potential to vastly reduce hospitalizations. But that drug and other COVID treatments are rather scarce right now, forcing doctors to triage who gets the treatment and who does not. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta investigates now why these treatments are not available to everyone when cases are higher than they've ever been. I could feel the, uh, like the mucus build up in my lungs. Like millions of other Americans, 26-year-old Clay Byington tested positive for COVID-19 after gathering with friends and family over the holidays. When the coughs came, it definitely sent the aches down the body. Were you quite worried about how sick you were getting? I was pretty worried. Um, I, I see a lot of stories about how people's health has declined very fast, you know, in a matter of days. I know that me being overweight um, just kind of worried me. Despite being boosted, Clay's BMI of 35 placed him at higher risk. So Clay's doctor prescribed him Paxlovid, an antiviral that has been shown to reduce hospitalizations by nearly 90 percent among those at highest risk for developing severe disease. They're a game changer and have the potential to dramatically alter the impact of COVID-19. Paxlovid is a combination of oral pills that work by interfering with the virus's ability to replicate. Based on Paxlovid's high efficacy, the 20 million courses bought by the Biden administration could eventually prevent more than a million hospitalizations, based on CNN's calculations. But the problem is this. The majority of those doses won't arrive for months. There's hardly any of these pill packs around. Dr. Eric Topol is executive vice president for research at Scripps in San Diego. He believes the Biden administration should have invested in Paxlovid months ago. Had we had hundreds of millions of of blister packs of Paxlovid right now, we'd be able so much better to fend against Omicron. Several months before the vaccines were authorized, there were at-risk investments being made, many bets being made on various vaccines. And, you know, those were gambles. Were those same sorts of gambles made on, on therapeutics? The fact that this was the first medication that was designed specifically against this virus That, um, I think, was worth a shot. It was worth an investment, but there was none. So far, just 160,000 courses have been delivered around the country. And with more people currently hospitalized with COVID-19 than at any other time during the pandemic, these pills will soon be in short supply. They will need to be rationed. Maybe challenging. Leaving Um, doctors like Sharisha Danaretti at the University of Washington's Harborview Medical Center with some tough decisions. We're using these medications judiciously and really giving them to the people that would most benefit from these therapeutics. If we open it up to vaccinated individuals, we would not have enough therapy. Should a vaccinated person get it versus an unvaccinated? Or should it only be for unvaccinated? I mean, it's going to raise all kinds of ethical and medical sort of questions. The availability is so limited 
and more people who are unvaccinated are going to wind up uh, in need. The National Institutes of Health guidance prioritizes treatment for those at highest risk, the immunocompromised, the elderly, and yes, the unvaccinated. Many of the people who are seeking this therapy may not need this therapy to recover um, from COVID-19. And is particularly if you're vaccinated, boosted. There are other treatments available, but remdesivir, an antiviral, and sotrovimab, and monoclonal antibody, both require infusions. And monupiravir, another oral pill, is the last-line option being recommended. None of them as effective as Paxlovid. Yesterday, my cold wasn't as worse, and today I'm feeling a lot better. Clay was one of the lucky few, getting both physical relief as well as mental relief from the drug. Once you're sick and you're, you know, you're, you're feeling the, the, the symptoms and you're, you're kind of like, oh my goodness, is this going to get worse? Um, so that kind of, the medication helped alleviate that stress and anxiety. You know, uh, Jake, there, there was so much uh, enthusiasm, understandably, around vaccines. Um, but in order for them to actually have had the supply that they wanted, they made these at-risk investments months earlier than the vaccines even had some of the trial data. That Those same sort of at-risk investments have not really been made in therapeutics. Uh, and I think it's, it's, a, it's why we're having the problem that we're having now. We also don't have enough testing, enough masks, I think, for the same reasons. People thought it was going to be the vaccines that everyone was relying on, and understandably, but as a result, the other things suffered. It's so difficult to watch your great piece there, Sanjay, and not get exasperated if a mere 160,000 courses of this new drug had been delivered out of the 10 million requested. Um, where exactly are, are the remaining 9,840,000? I, I know, I, I, I share your frustration here. I mean, the, the issue is, first of all, this is a hard drug to make. So the manufacturing of this is not easy, to be fair. But if they had been manufacturing at risk months ago, we would be having those millions of doses available now. Right As things stand, what we're hearing is that the doses, the first 10 million at least, should arrive by June, another 10 million by September. But we can pretty much be assured that the numbers of cases are going to go down, certainly over the, the warmer months, and there won't be as much a demand. We need them now and they're not there. And that, that's part of the concern. The White House says, look, they've cut a lot of red tape. They've tried to increase manufacturing. They're speeding up the process as much as possible. But again, what is the obligation to make at-risk investments in things besides vaccines, like therapeutics? All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Great report. A medical chopper transporting a baby to the hospital crash lands in a busy neighborhood, and everyone on board survives. Stay with us. In today's national lead, federal investigators are back at the scene of what's being called a miracle landing. A medical helicopter with a baby on board, no less, crashed just outside Philadelphia. The pilot maneuvered above a neighborhood, missing homes, missing traffic. He came down next to a church and miraculously, nobody on the ground or in the helicopter was seriously hurt. Let's bring in CNN's Pete Montaigne. Pete, what are investigators saying about what went wrong to begin with? Well, Jake, right now investigators say nothing really stands out to them, so they just removed the helicopter from the scene. They say it is remarkably intact, and now the inspection will continue off-site. We also have new images of the two-month-old baby girl being pulled from the wreckage. She was being flown to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. This crash happened just a few miles short in that crowded Drexel Hill neighborhood. Nobody on the ground hurt as well. 
Police say the pilot did a heroic job of dodging buildings and traffic. And now the National Transportation Safety Board just held a press conference. The investigator in charge says he is still gathering data and there are witness reports of the helicopter flying erratically before crashing. See the tail of it kind of like swinging like this. And so then it's coming down. So I put my car in reverse, slammed on it on the gas, reversed backwards. And then it hit. Then there was a lot of jet fuel coming out. And then we saw a little bit of fire inside of the uh, um, actual thing, but not a lot of fire. It was just mostly smoke like billowing out of the actual helicopter. Now, the investigator in charge says he has spoken with the pilot. He is in the hospital with serious injuries. Investigators describe his state as medicated and uncomfortable. The two other crew members have been released from the hospital, Jake. And, and Pete, the safety of these kinds of medical helicopters has before come into question. Well, medevac operators often fly in really unforgiving conditions, Jake. It's the nature of the job. Weather was quite good in this case. This medevac was operated by a company called Air Methods. It operates about 400 air ambulances nationwide. In a statement, the company says it will cooperate with the investigation. Air Methods was the subject of another NTSB investigation in 2018. That's when one of its helicopters crashed in Wisconsin and all three on board were killed. All right, a miraculous landing. Pete Montine, thank you so much. And our world lead, a milestone in the slow, legal, frustrating fight involving the rich and powerful dead pedophile who allegedly participated, I'm sorry, the rich and powerful people who allegedly participated in dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes against underage girls. Today, a federal judge refused to throw out a sexual assault lawsuit against Britain's Prince Andrew by a woman named Virginia Jufre. We've told you her report before. She claims Epstein trafficked her and that she was forced to perform sex acts with Prince Andrew when she was only 17 years old. The prince denies this. His legal team asked for the lawsuit to be dismissed. They argued that her lawsuit violated the terms of a confidential settlement between Jufre and Epstein in 2009. Of course, Epstein died in jail in 2019. Coming up, Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Australia could decide at any moment if the country will kick tennis star Novak Djokovic out of the country. That's ahead. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 